And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we are back. Welcome to yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. Uh, really, really excited to be here today. I'm your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Off Kilta Matilda, which makes it easy for parents and teachers to not only engage in STEM, but help kids relearn to love learning, which we're super psyched about here at Startup Hustle. Be sure to check out all of the free resources they have available to you on their website, offkiltamatilda.com. That is O-F-F-K-I-L-T-A-M-A-T. ILDA.com. Um, actually, we just had Sarah Shipley, who who founded Off Kilt Matilda on the show not too long ago. So you should definitely check out her episode. She's a super cool lady. Uh, and speaking of super cool ladies, we have with us today Vanessa Clark. And Vanessa is is something of a, a tech goddess to me. Um, so she her company, Atomos, was recently on our list of top Denver startups. And so we have heard of, of what you're doing in the space, Vanessa, for, uh, we, we've heard of it here in Kansas City. I mean, you're, kind, you're doing some ground shaking, groundbreaking work in deep tech. And so we definitely wanna talk to you about that, learn about what you're up to. But first of all, congratulations on, on getting added to the top Denver startups list. That's amazing. And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. Excellent, excellent. Well, so Vanessa is CEO of Atomos, and um, they do a lot of really interesting work in, in deep tech, particularly as um, as it relates to space. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to I'm just going to dive right into it because you're going to explain it so much better than I ever could. <laughs> but Vanessa, why don't you tell us about a little bit about yourself and Atomos, and you know what you're working toward? Yeah, absolutely. So. My background is aerospace engineering and physics. So I've worked for space agencies and rocket manufacturers and aerospace companies designing and building satellites and other spacecraft. And one problem that we're seeing time and time again is that launch to space is a bottleneck. And launch is not just really expensive, it constrains the volume and mass of spacecraft. And so one reason why we're not seeing expansion into space for exploration or for new businesses is because it's really constraining because you have to thread the needle and put your whole system on a launch vehicle and launch to space. It's a barrier to entry for new players as well as stifling innovation of existing satellite operators. So looking at how to change this and how to turn space launch into a more traditional or typical logistics model like we see on Earth with freight trains and cargo ships, uh, the way to do this is to actually use rockets in a completely different manner. So our company is building and operating orbital transfer vehicles. So these are satellites that can move other satellites. With orbital transfer vehicles, 
launch vehicles no longer need to take a single satellite to a very specific orbit. They can be used like cargo ships. So we can fill a rocket up to its full capacity and send those satellites to a low accessible orbit around Earth. Those satellites can then be collected by orbital transfer vehicles and distributed to their target destinations, be it in Earth orbit for missions like Earth observation and telecommunications, or be it in deeper space or to the moon for exploration and government agency missions. So, so one of the first questions that I have, th th this is kind of a context question, because I understand the words that you are putting together, you know, basically, like, I, I feel like I have a, a, a fundamental understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. But I want to talk a little bit more about what the application of that looks like, because because what I'm hearing is that essentially you are making it more accessible for different kinds of organizations and companies to to access space. Um, and that, you know, that's a great thing. But what does that look like in practice? Like you mentioned telecommunications, you mentioned a couple of industries that could be deeply impacted by this, but I, I'm going to ask you to drill down a little more specifically for us. Yeah, so let's look at a customer use case. So since we're here in Colorado, there's a Colorado company called Dish Network and their sister company EchoStar. So they have very large spacecraft that need to go to a really high orbit called geostationary Earth orbit altitude of nearly 40,000 kilometers. So to put that in context, the International Space Station is only at 400 kilometers. So um, these satellites need to go a quarter of the way to the moon um, to be operational. That typically costs a lot of money. So the average launch cost to get a satellite of that size to that high orbit ranges between 90 million and $150 million. If okay. the satellite wants the rocket to put it directly there, it's going to cost at least 120 million. So obviously this is a big barrier for entry, preventing new customers from coming in and also operating telecommunication systems. But it also prevents companies like Dish Network from replacing those satellites on a frequent basis. So even if the technologies that go into a satellite, like the antennas, onboard processing, um, to allow larger bandwidth and a large more allow more markets to be addressed, they can't really update those systems as frequently as the technology improves. So with orbital transfer vehicles, we change the model completely. We can put several spacecraft in a single rocket, and instead of sending it all the way to geostationary Earth orbit, we can just put it into a low orbit, like low Earth orbit where the International Space Station is at just a few hundred kilometers. This is so much cheaper. And with ride sharing, the cost can be amortized and spread amongst multiple satellite operators. Yeah. So, so what? Let, let, I just want to I want to delve a little bit more because I think I remember having I we had a conversation about this a while back, um, and I'm just curious. So, what is the what are some of the expenses that you are able to help mitigate? Because uh, I, I just found this fascinating. I'm really just asking this question from a a very selfish perspective. But what are some of the costs that you're able to help? cut <laughs> yeah so it's really three things so besides um that initial launch cost and reducing that initial launch cost we also reduce the needs for satellites to have their own onboard propulsion systems so even though a satellite in a lot of cases is just a camera or a radio antenna in the sky they need to have a really complex sophisticated rocket engine and propellant tank and propellant feed system on board so that they can get to their final orbit. 
we negate the need for that. So they can leave out a whole lot of that hardware and the mass associated with it. So again, going back to the dish network example, their satellites can be up to 50% in propellant and rocket engine and propellant tank, which means either their revenue generating payload is cut in half or the cost of their system is doubled. And so we remove that completely. We make satellites more like cargo rather than like sophisticated machines. Okay. I, I love that explanation. And, you know, I, I love the fact, I love it when people who deal with very, um, very specific, very um, deep knowledge topics, when they're able to convey those things really, really clearly and easily, there, there's that quote out there, like, if you can't explain something simply, then you don't understand it enough. Um, but that's what you just did. So, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, well, so, so I'm going to, we're going to hop into Atomos and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but first things first, I want to talk a little bit more about you. Um, I have to admit, I find you pretty fascinating. Um, I find most women in STEM, particularly women who have chosen to join, you know, these, these really male dominated fields and have cultivated just a, a very um, specific, deep knowledge around a topic. Like, I, I think you're fascinating. And so I, I'm really curious, um, how did you get your start? You know, you said that you studied um, aerospace and physics, and I'm just, I'm really curious as to kind of what, what brought you there? What made you decide that that was the course of study for you? How did you, Vanessa Clark, get here? <laughs> so it's a interesting question. So I actually grew up on a sheep ranch in Australia. It's a really middle of nowhere. Um, but my mother was a mathematics teacher. And so I guess through genes and also through her making maths fun, uh, I ended up finding mathematics very easy and funny. It was the subject that I would go to in high school where I could basically just switch my brain off and be in autopilot mode. Yeah. And so when I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to make sure there's mathematics in it because I find that easy. And so I ended up starting in physics just because it sounded challenging. When I was a really young kid, I considered being an astronaut and so going into physics and astrophysics, I was like, oh, this is a good path to explore. But I found after working as a physicist in a research facility for two weeks that I loathed it. So I was um, characterizing materials for the next generation of batteries in an amazing high-tech facility. But looking at statistical data, doing regression analysis, plotting things in Excel, I hated that. And that's a lot of what being a physicist is. You know, you don't just do experiments, you have to understand the data. And that was the one step that I hated. What I loved doing was designing and building the experiments. So I ended up swapping to engineering. Um, being one of only two women in our engineering class was also very interesting. Um, it was difficult to get into extracurricular activities and really be involved with things because there was really such a boys club around these activities. But I was um, fortunate enough to have a great supportive friend group who invited me into some of those things. So I participated in things like Formula SAE, which is um, a student run program to make race cars uh, in colleges, oh, wow. which is phenomenal. But 
Again, I was the only enge uh, female engineer on the team. And um, I always saw it as a challenge rather than um, being disheartened by being surrounded by men all the time and not really gelling from a cultural perspective or getting their jokes or participating in all their, their social events. I wanted to overcome the challenge and stick with it, even if it wasn't um, from a social or cultural perspective really fulfilling. And I'm was really it, glad that I did. Prove that you could, or was it because you knew that you should? Prove that I could. Uh, one yeah. of my favorite things to do is prove people wrong. So if someone said like, oh, I don't think you'll be good at that. I don't think you can do that. That's <laughs> the one thing that makes me turn around and absolutely do that thing. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I, I love that so much. And so, so what I find really, really interesting about your story is that, you know, you almost kind of, you, you, so you had a very supportive, I mean, you know, genetics aside, like, let's ignore the fact that you come from mathematically inclined stock. Um, <laughs> you know, the nurture piece um, was very, very important to you. You know, you had a supportive mom who was involved in STEM and was able to kind of support you. I, I think that's super cool. Um, but then was it, was it jarring to join you know, you get to your college experience and you start kind of seeing these socialization opportunities related to what you're doing and maybe they weren't as supportive. Was that jarring to you? Yeah. And, you know, it was also in some cases tempting to quit, like where, um, you know, they're at the university. I went to University of Sydney. They had a really big uh, women in engineering chapter, but all of the women uh, with a couple of exclusions, we're in biomedical engineering. Mm. There were only a couple who were in um, aerospace or mechanical or chemical or electrical engineering. It was, um, yeah. and a few women who are in kind of our streams ended up swapping to biomedical just because it seemed to be a more welcoming environment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like that. Well, and I, and I love the fact that, like, I, so, even when I'm not talking to, to women in STEM, when I'm talking to women across many different sectors, there is that kind of understanding that this culture, I love what I do, like tactically, I love learning about what I do, but this culture was not built for me. And so I either have to come in and disrupt it, or I have to come in and I have to align with it very mm -hmm kind of consciously. Um, and I mean, it sounds like, and honestly, like in, in many cases, it's a mixture of the two, like figuring mm -hmm. out what works for you as an individual in order to exist in these spaces. So I, I just find it, I find it fascinating when women are able to do that. And clearly you've done it very, very well, because look at where you landed. <laughs> you know, that, that is awesome. Um, well, so, so really quickly, I just want to remind the folks at home playing along with us that this episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by Off Kill to Matilda. Um, one of the things that we're talking about right now is how important it is to foster a love for STEM and a love for learning in, in young kids. You know, Vanessa here experienced that. So if virtual learning is bringing you down, parents, if you are looking for something to keep your kids engaged and excited about STEM, then you should definitely check out the resources that were developed by the STEM experts over at offkiltomatilda.com. Um, they have free downloads, printables, games, puzzles to make learning about STEM easy and fun. And so, so 
everything from coloring pages to science projects, things that you can do in your kitchen. Um, all of these things are going to come together to help your kids love STEM and make virtual learning fun, which I know is like a huge need right now. So, uh, and fun fact, and I, I didn't actually know this until right now, but they'll even zoom to your virtual learning classroom, which I think is super cool. I know a lot of educators who are struggling right now to figure out engagement strategies for, for, for virtual learning. So I think that that's super cool. Um, so, so let's, we're going to, we're going to start talking about Atomos now. <laughs> I would like to kind of talk to you about the, the tactics of, uh, well, no, I'm, I take that back. I don't want to talk about the tactics yet. I want to talk about the company. Um, so you are CEO and I'd be interested to hear like what your, I know that there's no day that's going to look exactly the same as the next, but kind of what your role is within the company. I know that you have a co-founder. I'd love to talk to you about that, but what does, what does a Tomos look like in practice? Yeah. So currently we're 11 people. Uh, we only have one team member who is not an engineer and that's my co-founder and actually my husband, William, who is our Fun. CEO. <laughs> Um, yeah, we have a great working relationship. We decided to expand it to all aspects of our lives. Um, you must like him a lot. <laughs> I have to so we ran the company for a year together before dating and then getting married. And I have to say, uh, you learn a lot about your co-founder. Uh, yeah. you know, even if, uh, obviously it doesn't go the way our relationship went, but we have yeah. to love working with that person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's a great piece of advice for folks listening at home. Like, you know, be very careful about who you choose as your co-founder, because even if you don't end up marrying them, you still have to work productively with them for a long time to come. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of day to day for the company, um, we're actually building two spacecraft at once right now. So we have a mission going up in 2022. Uh, so one of our first vehicles will fly for the first time. So our first space tug is called <laughs> Quark. I remember this is Quark. I know. I, know. Uh, I, I have a pet named Quark. That's why I um, kind of, I love that. <laughs> I did meet Quark before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so our Quark will be flying in 2022 with a sister vehicle called Gluon. Um, and this will be the first demonstration of our systems, but we will be um, doing some critical operations that haven't been done really in a commercial setting before and not in the orbital environment that we're doing it in. So Quark will rendezvous and dock to Gluon multiple times. It will refuel from Gluon and will also do some orbital transfers and dispense some customers into their operational orbits. So yeah. it's kind of a, a really big technical milestone for us, but it can also be our first commercial mission with the potential for commercial revenue. So yeah. both Quark and Gluon are in development right now, and that's what's really taking up our day to day. And, and how, how does that feel? I mean, this is this is huge for you. I mean, do you feel exhilarated, pressured, nervous? Um, what, what does that feel like? So I think I'm similar to a lot of CEOs where you always feel like you should be doing better or you could be doing more. Um, yeah. you know, I have to really consciously look back on our accomplishments and be like, you know what, we're doing okay. We've done a lot of amazing stuff. My yeah. default is always to want more, to be doing 
better to be doing things faster, um, which is good for us at a startup because it means we're always pushing ourselves. Um, but yeah. there is a lot of, I feel a lot of pressure to get this mission done. Yeah. And I, I, I think that you're absolutely right. And it's, I think it's kind of in the CEO like DNA where you're always where like outwardly on paper, it looks like you're doing everything right. Everything's going great. But then internally there's this like turmoil and this constant pressure, like where are the holes? Where can we improve? What are we, what are we failing at? Um, so, and, and you always kind of view it from that perspective because that's what allows you to, to grow and to get better. Um, yeah. so, so I love that, that it's so, it's so, it's so such an industry agnostic, um, you know, it, it's just the CEO mindset, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we, as a company, we completed a really great productive program a couple of years ago called Techstars. You may hey. But part of that um, teaching was um, telling us about our own personalities and you know, personality traits that we should also look out for in hires. Yeah. And being deliberate and finding people who um, feel a lot of personal responsibility is really critical. So one of the interview questions we like to ask is, Tell us about a time where you failed or where things didn't go according to plan. Yeah. And we really want um, the candidate to feel like they are personally responsible for everything that went wrong, even if that's not the case, because right. they're going to act with that same responsibility and diligence when they work for you. Um, we found that candidates who said, oh, you know, it was external factors, the market wasn't ready, or oh, we just couldn't get the you know, the investors weren't interested in funding. When they attribute the problems externally, they just don't take responsibility. And so I think right. it's, this is why it's kind of a common personality trait between successful CEOs. Yeah. Well, and so, so I find that, that really, really interesting. And, and I, I tend to agree with, with that, that statement because, because there, there's that saying out there and I, I'm, I'm going to butcher it just horribly. So I'm not even going to try to like really paraphrase it, but basically it essentially says that great leaders, um, you know, reflect the praise outward on their team and on their support systems. And then they own and take the, the negatives and the criticism and that they take that and they kind of internalize it. Um, and I've always found that really interesting because I, because I don't know how healthy that is, <laughs> but that being said, like, I, I think it's really important for leaders to own, like you own your team. And so you need to recognize your team, acknowledge your team, um, celebrate the wins with them. But when it all comes down to it, that, that negative stuff, those failures, like that's, that's on you. You know, because you're you're leading that team, and you that means you put responsibility for everything that team does on you, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'd say that there's another aspect that makes it so difficult to um, take responsibility for everything that goes wrong. That's that the CEO is the person who has to sell the company. You know, we're the head of sales, right. we're the head of fundraising, and when you go into a sales or an investor meeting, you have to be absolutely confident. You so right. somehow have to segment all of the negative stuff, all of the self-doubt, all of the, oh my goodness, I'm responsible for all of these issues that we've had. Um, yeah. You have to segment that and then present your most confident self, which is right. it's difficult to do. 
Well, and I almost like I I do I struggle with that. Like we we are in two totally different industries, um, and so so there there's a lot of things that we probably approach differently in our day to day. But I find it really interesting. Like I so as a leader, I try to be really um, authentic and transparent. Like when we screw up. I want to own that. And I want to, I want to explain why, like, I, I mean, I've told our members and I, I, I've told our stakeholders, like I, we will never be perfect. Um, we tend to be pretty experimental in what we do. So there are going to be failures. It's part of the small new organization journey. Um, I can't promise you that we'll be perfect because that's never going to happen, but I can promise you that I will be transparent and honest and I will explain my reasoning that is the commitment that I can, and then, you know, we won't do it again. <laughs> and that's the promise. And that's the commitment that I can make. But even, you know, beyond that, when we're talking to potential funders and stakeholders, like one of the frustrating things for me is, is often I've had people approach me and say, like, you can't, you can't be that honest. Like you have a potential funder who's watching you right now. And they're saying that they don't want to work with you because you admitted that you failed. And I'm like, I don't, necessarily want to work with the funder that doesn't understand that failure is it, it's a part of this like it yeah. is a it is a given <laughs> you know there is no way we are going to operate perfectly in everything that we do and i feel like that kind of applies to to what you're talking about a little bit but in vc um man it is just so deeply entrenched that you have to communicate only the good and only that you're hashtag killing it and and so that's that's really interesting to me has that has that been difficult so i definitely have a fundraising hat and persona and then um uh say a managing ceo persona managing yeah. ceo is a lot more um i don't speak in absolute terms i say that hey it is my opinion and belief that this is true. Whereas yeah. talking to VCs, it's like, no, this is true. This is correct. Like leaving um, no room for the perception of doubt or weakness. As, but it's, you know, I wish we That's could tough. do more. That sounds like such a difficult line to straddle. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry that you have to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's what we have to do. It's the industry. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, clearly you are just, you're getting stuff done. So, so one of the things that I, I definitely want to talk to you, I want to delve a little bit more deeply into that team culture that you're building. You have 11 people on your team. Mm -hmm. You've talked a little bit about how, um, you know, you expect your team, you expect great things from your team, I'm sure. And you expect them to in particular, your leaders, you expect them to own the mistakes and, you know, work to perfect them. And I think that that's pretty much all you can ask of, of anybody on your team. But what are some of the other kind of cultural touchstones that you, you prioritize when you're trying to build a team? So um, I saw a really great tweet about how you have to be intentional about culture or it just happens and gets set in stone. Um, yeah. We were very fortunate with some of the first engineers we brought on board because they complemented our vision for the company and what culture we wanted to build. So besides really the radical transparency and authenticity that we try to bring in, we have a culture of anyone can have their say. So we try to be a meritocracy. We allow our engineers to criticize us, raise their hands when they think we're doing the wrong thing. Um, I think, you know, it's, really extraordinary that some of our most junior people feel empowered to say, Vanessa, I'm 
don't understand why we're doing this. I think we may be doing the wrong thing. That's one mm -hmm. thing that has really been ingrained by our first employees. The yeah, I was going to say the other big cultural aspect that um, we've managed to foster is a culture of um, tutoring and mentorship. So we have some phenomenal senior engineers and they know that it is always going to be okay for them to take time out of their day, time out of the work that they've been assigned to mentor junior members. And it's um, our junior members also know it's always okay to ask for help and support. And, um, you know, they're, I guess, these three aspects of the culture, so being transparent, being able to give and receive feedback at all levels, and then yeah. also a culture of mentorship are things that we're really, I, we're proud that we've gotten to the point that we're at. Um, one thing that I personally want to bring to the company and as we grow, um, want to continue this aspect, but um, is more with respect to ownership. So if you look at aerospace engineering traditionally, you don't have a single engineer being responsible for the whole system. You, know, you have essentially process that dictates quality of a system. So you have engineering review boards, you have a lot of documentation, you have a lot of checks, a lot of yeah. doubling up of engineering effort to make sure things get done correctly. And one of the first companies to move away from that culture and put the responsibility instead of being process-based to being based on the person and having a single engineer have complete ownership was SpaceX. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're also looking to replicate in our culture going forward. Interesting, interesting. Um, so how do you, in making that decision, cause that, cause you're right. Like, I mean, I worked in, in technology and it for years and, and yeah, like you, you have your QAs and you have your, your beta tests and your role, you know, rollouts and, and all of that. And so, so that's really, that's really interesting. How do you feel that that has changed or will change your company culture? So something that we're trying to um, say bring into our processes and operations right now um, mm -hmm. and part of anyone being able to raise a red flag and provide feedback at any level is part of this. Um, you know, then one thing that we have to do to ensure that it continues is when we bring new people in, we have to make sure that they understand in their previous roles in aerospace why those processes existed, hmm. um, what things they were intended to prevent, and any shortcomings in those processes. So you know, we need, um, as we build out the team, beyond 11 people, you know, we're really looking for people who um, had complete understanding of not just their role in building a spacecraft or a rocket, but understood what happened before them and what happened after them in terms of process. So that's how we're growing to that stage in terms of how we expect it to impact our culture just makes us more agile. We're able to move more quickly. And it also, in a lot of cases, will make our engineering more robust because we're not reliant on a process to make us uh, prevent us from making errors. We're really reliant on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So there's just more inherent flexibility, agility, and creativity that can go into a process once we into engineering once we remove the cumbersome process. Yeah. Well, well, that is awesome. So, so 
the the question that I'm I'm gonna the next question that I'm gonna ask is only tangentially related to the conversation that we've had up until now, but but it is related, I think. And one of the things that I want to talk to you about is the culture of the larger community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in the past, and 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 one of the reasons that we um, startup hustle actually identified um, Colorado and Denver specifically as a top startup city that we wanted to talk about was because of this great um, startup culture that that they have cultivated. Um, and, you know, in Kansas City has the same. You know, they've done Aust- we've done Austin stop top startups, they have a really strong startup culture. And one of the things that you and I had talked about in the past was the fact that Denver in particular has a really strong aerospace culture. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you about that. And I want you to kind of tell us, you know, what, what you're existing as part of a larger ecosystem. And I I just want to talk about that ecosystem and, and talk about what that looks like for you organizationally, like how it can be a help or a hindrance or, or what that feels like. Yeah, so in terms of Colorado aerospace entrepreneurship community, I think of it as two circles on a Venn diagram. So mm-hmm. on one side, we have the, what you mentioned before, the Colorado startup community. So, I mean, we have the original tech stars here. We have Boundary Group. We have a lot more um, groups up and coming to support entrepreneurs, and we have more tech startups being founded here. Yeah. Um, on the other side, we have Colorado Aerospace. So fun fact, there are more aerospace engineers per capita in Colorado than any other state, even California, even Florida. I think I it's like that is a fun fact. One <laughs> percent like of the population in Colorado are aerospace engineers. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the reason for that, even though we don't have a NASA center, there's the Air Force Academy, and there are a couple of really large aerospace companies here, including my previous employer, Lockheed Martin. Um, so, but these two groups, the startup community and aerospace were always separate. And over the past few years, they've started to come close together and there has been some overlap. Um, and you know, really on a monthly basis, that overlap increases. We have more space-based startups moving to Colorado because there's the great talent base because there are so many aerospace engineers here. And then they're also moving here because the startup community is realizing that aerospace is a great industry that also needs support, either um, a mentorship, community events, or also funding. So it's really up and coming. Um, and it's great that these two big communities are finally getting to know each other and allowing businesses like ours to succeed. That is that is awesome. And and so so I'm going to ask you the the extension. Of, of that question. I feel like there's like a, an organic follow-up here. Um, but what are some of the exciting things or trends that you, I mean, in addition to what you are doing at Atomos, what are some of the, the trends that you see coming down the pipeline in aerospace? What are some of the things that we can expect? Because I mean, this is, this is a huge potential industry, like I mean, not even potential, like it's already happening, yeah. but there, there is so much, like we're having conversations about privatized commercial space flight that we hadn't had until we saw SpaceX, you know? And so I'm just curious as to what your, your thoughts are on some of the things that we see happening in the future. So looking at trends that are really driving the space market, these are things like big data, AI, ML, 
Um, and then the need for global broadband internet. Um, yeah. For climate science is another really big one. So looking sure. at these sectors and kind of the tools that are being produced in those sectors or the needs that are, I guess, newly discovered or created in those sectors are really things that are impacting the space industry. Some of the big trends that I'm excited about are um, Internet of Things connectivity. So Internet of Things for industrial processes, for logistics, for so many applications makes a lot of sense. But having connectivity for those sensors everywhere is challenging unless you have a space-based architecture. Right. Another thing that's really exciting, and um, I think I'll mention another Colorado company. Uh, they're based, I think, in Golden, called Planet IQ. They are mapping the atmosphere in a three-dimensional way, something that hasn't before been possible. And so they can provide very, very accurate weather predictions. Uh, sure. With longer lead time as well. So obviously this week with the very interesting weather patterns we're seeing. Yeah, we, we're, we're experiencing a giant yeah. cold snap um, <laughs> that everybody is just going nuts over. Uh, but yeah, just days and we a couple of weeks now, actually for us anyway, of sub-zero yeah. temperatures or sub-zero wind chills. So um, yeah, so, having a heads up on that would have been would have been real cool. <laughs> and I mean, it's also really valuable for um, a lot of industries. So car rental industries, events industries that where their revenue is really influenced by the weather. Like this is valuable data for them. Yeah. Um, and the last sector that I'm really excited about is like I mentioned, global broadband internet. So I think a lot of listeners would have heard of SpaceX's Starlink constellation. One of the problems with it is that you need a little ground terminal an antenna to, mm. to get their um, online service. But there are actually companies that have designed satellites that can connect internet directly to your mobile phone. So suddenly you don't need the special ground receiver that SpaceX Starlink needs to sell its users. If everyone in the world can get on the internet, no matter where they are, just with a cell phone, suddenly this is the way that we can get a billion more people online in the next decade to sure. close the inequality gap that we have globally. Oh yeah, like the, the digital divide is is a real thing, and I love that there are companies out there that are looking to to break down that. So so somebody uh, Denise Hamilton, we just did a show with her, and she used the the term democratizing access, and I I love that that phrase. And I, I told her I was like, I'll credit you, but I'm going to use that like all the time. Uh, <laughs> but no, that that is that is really really cool. Um, so. We've talked about this a little bit. We talked about Quark and we talked about Gluon, but but what are some of the other expectations, some of the exciting things that you have for Atomo specifically? You know, next couple of years, five, 10, what's the outlook like for you? So let's say besides our first mission and launching an entire fleet of orbital transfer vehicles, one thing that I'm really excited about, uh, that's a, our vision for the future is the technologies that we're using. So we're using high power electric propulsion and including nuclear electric propulsion. So this is a, an electric thruster that uses an electromagnetic field to accelerate a propellant at very high speeds. They're very efficient. It's powered by a small lightweight power source like a fission reactor. Now this technology is what I was researching you know, previous roles at space agencies and also in my abandoned PhD this combination of technologies is what makes the solar system small. 
So mm-hmm. after we fly them on our vehicles, it's the technology that can get humans to Mars in less than two months, can get us to the outer planets, so Jupiter and back pretty quickly. It, it suddenly makes really robust exploration both with robots and humans of the solar system possible. It's kind of the one breakthrough that we need to happen to realize the future where we're zipping between planets and utilizing asteroids for their minerals and that type of thing. That's one of the reasons why we started the company, but it's also one of the reasons why we keep doing what we're doing because that's the future that we all want to see. Yeah. That... Oh, that is amazing. I'm such a futurist. I'm just like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, okay. I have, I have one final question for you. And the reason I'm going to ask you this question is because I actually remember asking you this question previously. And I just, I love the fact, like, you're such a geek. And I mean that in the like most loving, like geek power, I think you're awesome sense of the, the word. Um, and so I want to talk to you. Um, my, my human question is I want, I want you to tell us about, about your, your geekdom, like what, what kind of geeky things, not related to like what you do, but the things that you love. And I'm actually, hold on, I'm going to, I'm gonna grab. I think I may have done this last time, but while while I am doing this, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my personal R two D two, and just you know, I, I want to hear you talk about how how are you a geek in your personal life? <laughs> you know, I I really wish I had more of a personal life. Running a startup with a seven month old baby is tough, but um, fair. fair. <laughs> I've been a long time Star Wars fan. Um, you know, have eaten up all of the different sci-fi TV series. So up to date on The Expanse, which is amazing. Uh, if you awesome. haven't watched it, you need to. Uh, weren't you like, aren't you a Star Trek fan too? Like, do I remember you being a Star Trek fan or was it more Star Wars? That's okay. It's definitely, it's definitely Star Wars. I'm okay. sorry. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> um, I, I do have, I guess, a geeky tie-in. Um, one of the reasons why I went into aerospace, so I have a story from when I was in high school. I had a phenomenal physics teacher who hated following the curriculum. He was telling yeah. us a story one day about the Apollo 9 mission. And so this was obviously before the Apollo 11 landing. And he played an audio track or a reading of an audio transcript from the mission. And it was the astronauts talking amongst themselves and then suddenly going, oh, what's that? Quick, come to the window. Look, look. And they're like, oh, oh, my gosh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. And so they're marveling at something out the window. So he pauses the recording and is like, what were they looking at? And so the whole class were all 17-year-olds were kind of like, oh, they, they came around the back of the moon and they were looking at Earthrise. And he was like, no. Like, hmm. They were orbiting the Earth and they just got out of the shadow. So they saw sunrise from orbit. And he's like, no. <laughs> the tape. What had happened was they had just done a urine dump. Oh my so God. When the urine hit the vacuum what? of space, it froze instantly in a giant golden globe. And they were watching this globe float by the window. But then, as they were watching, it hit an antenna on the side. Uh-huh. Of the spacecraft and it shattered slow motion. Yeah. Like one of those um you know water balloon bursting videos. So so, so it would have been golden shards. 
glittery, you exactly. know, projectiles of pee. <laughs> That's what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. So these little gold crystals slowly moving in symphony around the spacecraft. Anyway, I thought that was amazing. I'm like, what an industry and what an environment. I want to work in an environment where going to the bathroom is that extraordinary. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I feel like if we had like taglines for, for episodes, like that would be it. Like I <laughs> industry, we're going to the bathroom is that extraordinary. I love that so much. Well, well, Vanessa, I cannot tell you how much I have appreciated your time. Uh, you know, I knew that we were going to have a good conversation and well, look at that. We did. Um, but thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time to chat with us today. All right. Well, thank you. It was so much fun. Good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, so once again, I do want to remind you that today's episode of Startup Hustle was sponsored by Off Kilter Matilda, making it easy for parents and teachers to not only engage in STEM, but help kids relearn to love learning. Be sure to check out all of the free resources they have available to you on their website, offkiltamatilda.com. That is O-F-F-K-I-L-T-A-M-A-T-I-L-D-A dot com. And we are so glad, listeners, that you have taken the opportunity to, to spend some time with us. Hope you learned a lot. I know that I sure did. Um, you know, super excited to learn about urine in space. Uh, that'll be like one of my big takeaways, but also learning about some of the really cool things that are happening in deep tech and aerospace. Um, so listeners, um, we love you. Keep coming back and we will catch you next time. <laughs> Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.